Okay, teleportation, soul dagger, pink hair, weird eyes, although that one's inconsistent. Hey, whatcha up to, Miles? Oh, hey, Jay, I'm trying to get a handle on Pixie's powers. Oh, well, that's not too hard. It's not? Um, we can table the soul dagger stuff for now, okay? Okay, all right, so with that off the table, what's left? Uh, let's see, she's got wings, obviously, and she can fly. Okay. And her wings also produce a hallucinogenic dust. Well, that sounds useful for some value of the term. She is also fluent in Welsh. Is that technically a superpower? Have you ever tried speaking Welsh? Hmm, fair. What about the teleportation? Oh, no, that's not a mutant power at all. That's magic. So she got it from Ilyana Rasputin? No, it's lowercase magic without a K. It's a spell she casts. Okay, so she's a magic user. Yeah, she is, but she's also inherently magical. How so? She's half fairy on her mom's side. I thought she was Welsh. They're not mutually exclusive. Hmm. I think I remember her dad being a minor. No, her dad is definitely an adult. No, 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 minor with an E, the kind who works in a mine. Ah, well, no, he's not that either, actually. That's just something Pixie's mom made up. But he is human, right? Oh, gosh, no. So he's a mutant. Miles, he's mastermind. What?! I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 192 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to Alan Davis Excalibur. But first, Jay, how's it going? Um, it goes. I should I should say, if I sound odd this week, I'm, I'm in a kind of makeshift setup as I am between offices. I dismantled um, the previous desk and moved it to a, a new location that's not really recording suitable, and I was starting to build my new desk, but um, it's going to be sort of a, a, a fold-down desk in a, a really small space, which is going to be amazing for recording, but... The walls, we have a really old apartment and the walls are plaster and finding studs in plaster walls is really hard. And the really short version is that lacking adequate mastery of magnetism myself, um, I've been forced to improvise, which has thrown the schedule back a few days. Entirely legit. Yeah, I'm still not in exactly the permanent setup I would like recording-wise, you know, since we uh, started recording in our own homes as opposed to in a, in a studio. I don't know. We got to figure it out at some point. Yeah, I'm working on it. We have we have walls painted and and spackled. Um, the people who lived in our place before us, in addition to being Euro trash werewolves, were extremely extremely dubious at home maintenance, and basically, as far as we can tell, just covered everything in spackle. So, thing one, I like the word spackle. Thing two, I'm curious about the Euro trash werewolf part, but I feel like we should probably get to comics. So, um, hey, Excalibur. Previously on Excalibur. The team is currently split up on a bunch of different missions. Shadowcat and Professor Alistair Stewart of the Weird Happenings Organization, her number one crush at the time, are off in Ireland at an archaeological dig. Captain Britain, after breaking Nightcrawler's leg in a jealous rage due to a sexy dream Nightcrawler had about Captain Britain's partner Megan, was captured by agents of the Otherworld and brought to trial at the Nexus of the Omniverse for being a very bad Captain Britain. 
He has been sentenced to death and so is currently punching all of the other Captains Britain uh, with the help of his ally and erstwhile lawyer, Linda McQuillan, Captain UK. I guess it would be Captains Britain, wouldn't it? It's kind of like Carl's Jr. Kind of, but different. Well, Phoenix has been accompanying Megan on a journey to find Megan's parents and thus to find out who Megan really is. Thus far, mostly fruitlessly. Phoenix during this trip has turned off the Phoenix Force, which is apparently a thing you can do, so that she can interact with people normally. And as she's had the Phoenix Force dormant, her mojo-scrambled memories have been returning bit by bit. Nightcrawler, for his part, is still at the Excalibur Lighthouse and or Interdimensional Mushroom. He is holding down the fort and training intergalactic bounty hunters TechNet to try to be proper superheroes so that they can solve a bunch of museum robberies. Those robberies are also being investigated by the size-changing Micromax, who's a superhero, super-something, working for the British intelligence agency FI6, which we have not found out what that stands for, and I'm not sure that we ever will, which I enjoy. The only time FI6 is ever going to come up is in relation to being the people Micromax works for, and that's mostly going to be peripheral, so don't worry too much about that one. Meanwhile, on Earth-148, also known as Erath... Leonin barbarian warrior Kylan and his lover, Princess Satnine, have been leading a revolution against the despotic wizard Necrom. Necrom has taken over their world, and they have risen up against him in the name of being awesome and very Edgar Rice Burroughs. It is so good, like cutting from mostly our world Excalibur plot lines to just this science fiction barbarian swords and sorcery world. It's a lot of fun. Now, all of these plot lines have been amazingly conveyed in every way because we are early on in Alan Davis's run of both writing and penciling Excalibur, and everything is perfect and nothing hurts. And it's sort of arbitrary where we pick up and leave off with these issues because Alan Davis's run is just sort of a great big chunk of comic book. It's like Claremont's old X-Men where there would be a bunch of plot lines going on for a long time and they'd all be overlapping. We're going to see a lot of them resolved with issue number 50, but for now we are in the glorious thick of it. We've talked about pacing and the way comics are currently paced to story arcs meant to be collected in trade paperbacks. And something to remember is that during this era, that was very much not the case. And Excalibur, in particular at this point, is very much and very explicitly an ongoing serial. Storylines pick up and drop off, not all at once, but interwovenly. And so in looking at how to break it up for the podcast, we're making those breaks basically where it makes sense to us, where it works to leave off for a few more weeks while we look at, uh, at other things. But those points are largely arbitrary and largely a matter of judgment. Exactly. So we'll be picking up in the middle of a number of plot lines. The first of those plot lines start in Excalibur number 45, Nightcrawler's TechNet. You know what the best thing is about having Alan Davis back on Excalibur? There are like 40 best things. What's the one you're thinking of? Well, the first best thing the, the top best thing, perhaps, because it's, it's the first one you see is the covers. Yeah, this one is great. Do you want to describe it, Jay? Right. So we have, we have basically an homage to the giant size X-Men number one cover um, with, with Nightcrawler and TechNet all outfitted, you know, bursting out together as a brand new team. And I guess we should probably do a quick reminder of who TechNet is. They're basically a bunch of intergalactic time-traveling bounty hunters of a bunch of weird different alien races. They were previously led by Gatecrasher, giant purple awesome lady, but uh, she split a little while ago when um, it turned out their contracts got terminated and they weren't going to get paid. Miles, Gatecrasher is blue. 
Well, she's blue and she wears purple. Good point. I think of her as purple, but you're right. Her actual skin color is totally blue. Correct. Now, Technet are a scrappy and deeply ridiculous group. They at least originally began as Doctor Who homage. Their first appearance was as their primary rivals and a future version of their own group, the Special Executive, which is actually going to be coming into play a few issues from now. Right, because Doctor Who comic books used to be published by Marvel, and thus they were kind of, sort of, in Marvel continuity-ish. They played a little faster and looser back in those days. I believe, if I recall correctly, they first appeared in Alan Moore's run of Captain Britain. I don't know if it was in the Captain Britain comic. It might have been Mighty World of Marvel or something like that. But I believe he created them uh, in Doctor Who and then brought them into Captain Britain a little bit after that. They are an improbable and motley crew with ridiculous powers, and I will link in the visual companion to this episode to some of the places where we've discussed them at more length, as is, I don't think we really need to go through and reintroduce all of them since they're mostly sort of functioning as a unit right now. The few of them who are relevant as, as individuals we'll talk about as they come up in this episode. Yeah, they're basically a great big roiling ball of glorious chaos that Nightcrawler sort of vaguely directs around, uh, with varying levels of success. Now, these days, they are working under Nightcrawler's supervision. Excalibur has taken them in and allowed them to live at the lighthouse because Technet is exiled to Earth. And they're trying really hard to be good at superheroing, and they're really not. And what they're doing right now with Nightcrawler is staking out the major Mainwaring Museum where Inspector Di Thomas, um, who's their, their buddy at Scotland Yard, um, his psychic friend has told him that the mysterious thief who has been stealing valuables from the UK is going to strike there next. Now, we talked about this woman, Amelia Witherspoon, the police psychic, a little bit in our last Excalibur episode. Well, our last Alan Davis's Excalibur episode. I guess there was that whole possession thing, but the less said the better about that story. And we didn't really know anything about her at the time, and we just sort of went off on a big tangent about police psychics and our feelings toward them. Which are negative. Which are negative. But Frequent Explain the X-Men.com commenter Icon UK actually picked up something we completely missed. Icon UK pointed out that Amelia Witherspoon is actually a direct homage to the actress Dame Margaret Rutherford, who famously played Miss Marple and also played the eccentric medium and clairvoyant Madame Arcati in Blythe Spirit by Noel Coward. And uh, Icon UK talks a fair bit more about this. You should check out the comments to that episode if you're interested, and you should be because it's fascinating. Now, there is a mysterious interloper in the museum, and Technet strikes, but it turns out it's just Micromax again, who remains a boring jerk and also fairly generally incompetent. Or at least incompetent whenever Technet is around to screw everything up, which is kind of their job. Technet did not screw anything up in this case. Micromax's equipment was sabotaged by the thief from right under his nose. So um, I'm fully placing the blame on Micromax here, as is Di Thomas, who shows up uh, just in time for a jurisdictional showdown with the head of FI6, a man whose name is Inky Blot. Right. And I love this. Like, Di Thomas has traditionally been the grumpy jerk who's kind of allied with Excalibur, but mostly just, like, is grumpy at them all the time. But right now, he's having an argument with a guy who's way more of a bureaucratic jerk. And it kind of reminds me of that one um, Secret Wars bit where Wolverine is defending Cyclops when they're confronting, I think, the Avengers or something. You know, right, yeah. Di Thomas may be a jerk, but he's our jerk. He's also often right. 
Well, which, again, parallel to Cyclops, but uh, Di Thomas is largely antagonistic because he feels that superheroes do a lot of damage, and he's not wrong. Especially when superheroes like these are around. Now, Nightcrawler has no interest in this interagency posturing, so he and TechNet just sort of, you know, ghost. Also, Nightcrawler has enough to worry about right now because he is trying his best to forge TechNet into an effective team. And uh, TechNet is terrible. They really are. Nightcrawler actually has this crisis of, of confidence uh, around this situation, wondering if when, you know, Excalibur wasn't scattered in a bunch of different directions as of the last couple of issues, if they just saw him as some kind of a mascot, if he was just a hanger on. But dude, Nightcrawler was actually probably as much of a leader as Captain Britain, if not more of one. He's definitely the best adjusted member of Excalibur at this point. And also... He's dealing with TechNet, and and I feel like this is this is something you gotta grade on a massive, massive curve, because trying there there's trying to forge a group of superpowered individuals into a team, and then there's trying to get TechNet to do anything in an organized way that involves following orders, and those are those are two very different levels of difficulty. Right. Uh, to be fair, though, Nightcrawler was actually a pretty terrible leader when he tried to lead the X-Men back in the 80s very briefly. He wasn't very good at that. But under these circumstances, nobody would be. At least, not yet. So Nightcrawler thinks back to his early time on the all-new, all-different X-Men, who, as you may recall, were a pretty contentious group. Like TechNet, they were all adults when they came in. You know, they obviously weren't raised together. There were some strong personalities that clashed hard. And he... he he thinks about it and he realizes that, well, they had a name. They were they were a team. They had a, a team identity. And maybe that's what he needs to give TechNet, not just, you know, an alliance or a mercenary group, but a superhero team. I'm going to jump in real quick to point out that you said that TechNet were all adults. Joy Boy is technically a floating baby, but maybe that's what adults of Joy Boy's species look like. It's really hard to say. Joy Boy is confusing and somewhat troubling. My impression was that is that Joy Boy is an adult who is also a floating baby? Okay. Uh, it kind of makes me think of um, Time Baby from Gravity Falls. Do you remember Time Baby? I definitely remember Time Baby. Speaking of troubling. But anyway. Now, Nightcrawler takes his theory a step further than Professor Xavier did with the all-new, all-different X-Men. We'll see how in just a minute. But, but I will say that, that Captain Holt would approve. Of, of how Nightcrawler goes about developing team identity, which we will see the next time that Micromax stakes out a possible burglary. Now, once again, Micromax fails to thwart the thief, but fortunately for Micromax and fortunately for the valuables, um, the newly minted N-Men are here to save the day, and that is TechNet in matching uniforms with big N's on the belt. <laughs> yup. Because if there's one lesson to be learned from Charles Xavier other than when in doubt, fake your own death, it's that the way to forge a real good superhero team is to start by naming them after yourself. That's right. And apparently it works pretty well because the N-Men do manage to subdue and finally shrink down the now visible, thanks to their powers, Thief. The Thief is a great big scary demon, which is drawn by Alan Davis and so looks really cool. Now, the demon, as it turns out, is the means by which the thefts are being performed, but it's not technically the thief. It's being mind-controlled by someone too far away to track. 
TechNet tends not to worry about the details, they're just very pleased about their victory. As China Doll, whose power is to shorten the distance between atoms and thus turn creatures into tiny little petrified, well, China Dolls, essentially, says, Funny pretty thing mine. Shrunk it, did I? And Die Thomas, who's a silly man and thinks that he can tell TechNet what to do, responds, You can't keep it. It's evidence. Yeah, no, they definitely keep it. Also, Die's psychic friend Amelia has no idea what's going to happen next. Whether there's some kind of interference going on or the impending every end of everything coming, she's not sure. Do you remember the Gene Kelly episode of The Muppet Show? Uh, yeah, I do. That was a good one. Right. It's one of my favorite episodes. It's really delightful. You should look it up if you haven't seen it. Um, they spend the entire episode trying to convince him to sing Singing in the Rain. But early on... Beauregard reaches the conclusion that the end of the world is coming. And this bit reminds me of that. And actually, this whole issue kind of reminds me of that, mostly because they're both utterly delightful and a bit nonsense and totally remarkably similar. They kind of are. Although I think my favorite episode of The Muppet Show, or at least my favorite I can think of right now, is the one with Vincent Price, just because, A, Vincent Price. Oh, yes. And Sweetums singing, um, I've got you under my skin as he eats other Muppets. Right, and Kermit turns into a vampire and, like, dives at people's throats, and it's delightfully bizarre. People forget just how kind of menacing The Muppet Show often was. Again, I think if I had to choose the single best analog for the tone and content of Alan Davis's Excalibur run, it would be that era of The Muppet Show. It's got the same kind of silliness and cartoonish logic and... I mean, it's not technically sketch comedy, but it's, it's a lot of really remarkably similar interpersonal dynamics and a really, really parallel sense of humor. You know, you're not wrong. That just makes me want to see Alan Davis draw a Muppet Show comic, though, or hell, Muppet Babies, even. Also, there are some aesthetic similarities. Mm -hmm. Very colorful. Anyway, uh, the team has won. But as they're all hanging out post-victory, a large green hand creeps in from off-panel and yanks Joy Boy away, which nobody else really notices because, again, TechNet is a roiling ball of chaos and no coordinated uniforms is going to change that. As TechNet celebrate their first victory, Captain Britain is in trouble. He is on Otherworld, the headquarters of, well, the multiverse, and he and his lawyer, or stand-in lawyer, Linda McQuillan, that's Captain UK of Earth-839, are fighting for their lives. Captain Britain has been sentenced to death for, again, being a very bad Captain Britain. Captain UK, as his lawyer, shares his fate. They are trying to survive this. But luckily, Saturnine shows up in the nick of time with a note from Aroma, basically rendering the entire verdict moot, and they're free to go. Now, Saturnine, of course, is the Omniversal Majestrix, which is, um, I'm not quite clear on what that means, other than that it's a very, very high position in the Omniverse, in the organizations that kind of run everything. She's sort of Roma's chief of staff at this point. And Roma is the daughter of Merlin, and if there could be a single person said to be in charge of the Omniverse, it's probably her. So... With their new leases on life, Captain Britain and Captain UK head outside, they wander around, and Captain UK gives Captain Britain a bit of a crash course in multiversal metaphysics because Captain Britain skipped all of the orientation seminars. So his, his knowledge of, of Captain Britain core stuff is basically limited to, I wear some colors and I do the punching. Which is always interesting to me because Brian Braddock was a scholar for his entire life up until he became Captain Britain. Specifically, he was a scientist. He had these, this intense intellectual curiosity. 
Well, something he brings up with Captain UK when she's starting to discuss this stuff is that as a scientist, he's always had a really strained relationship with the supernatural elements and the, the, specifically the magical elements of the Captain Britain Corps. And it's something that he kind of feels most comfortable just blowing off because he's a jerk. He, he is a jerk, but again, he's our jerk. So let us wrap at you. The Captain Britain Corps, they're powered by a massive trans-dimensional energy matrix, which only interfaces with Earth proper around the British Isles or the British Isles equivalent of all of the different Earths in the multiverse. Now, normally, when a Captain Britain travels away from Great Britain, their costume will store energy from that matrix, which continues to power them on their travels. However... Those costumes are geared to each specific Captain Britain. And RCB has been wearing someone else's. He has been running around in the uniform of Captain Marshall from Earth 1193, which is why he lost his powers when he was in America during Inferno. See, and we just figured that the artist thought it would be easier to draw because, you know, less lines and stuff. The lost powers or the costume? Uh, the costume. I think the lost powers just made it more amusing because he kept falling out of the sky. Also, it turns out that the lighthouse Excalibur has been using, or at least its basic form, is a multiversal constant. There's a tower with the same location and spatial configuration on every plane of the multiverse, all existing simultaneously, which explains some of the more peculiar happenings at Excalibur's own lighthouse. This seems like as good a time as any to mention something we briefly alluded to earlier, which is that Excalibur's lighthouse kind of half blew up when Technet attacked it a while back, and when Technet rebuilt it as part of the deal for staying there, it now looks like a giant mushroom, which is very silly and makes me smile every time I look at it. Now, Captain UK only has so much time to walk Captain Britain through the basics because she, like him, like every other member of the Captain Britain Corps, has a job to do and duty calls. She tells Captain Britain... Yes, I'd love to stay and explore, but that's my Earth's interface and I should really be heading home. The Red Monarch has stolen the crown jewels again, and I have to retrieve them before Princess Madonna's coronation in three days' time. I love these little windows into other stories that just speak to these gigantic tales that we will never hear more about. I mean, in Linda McQuillan's world, or, okay, not her world, because it's technically the second world she's been the Captain Britain of, but that's a long story, apparently Madonna's going to be the new monarch? Like, okay, okay. What I have extrapolated from this brief glimpse is that Linda McQuillan is Captain Britain of the world of Diana Warrior Princess. That role-playing game has come up on this show a number of times, but perhaps a very brief summary of it. So the premise of Diana Warrior Princess is basically, let's take the last several centuries and treat them the way medieval, vaguely-esque fantasy games treat roughly a 600-year period in terms of mixing stuff up and condensing it and mixing in elements of fantasy. It's really silly. It's really, really clever, and it's got some fantastic world-building. So Captain UK's oblique reference to these grand events on her world, that kind of reminds me of the Meanwhile issue of Excalibur back from the Crosstime Caper, where TechNet was off doing their main thing in the A-plot, and then we would just get little scenes here and there of Excalibur going from one bizarre world to the next. Like at one point they're doing a universal horror movie monster thing, at one point they're doing cowboys, at other points they're in worlds that are really too hard to describe in a few words. Just again, this idea that there's all this stuff going on in the multiverse, we're going to focus on this little 
little bit. But remember, everything out there is out there, and boy, howdy, is it bizarre. And that's what Excalibur should do. That's the book Excalibur should be. Excalibur should remind us that not only are we a tiny speck in the vast cosmos, but that the cosmos is goddamn bonkers. Now, this leaves Brian, who I should point out, spends this entire arc running around in nothing but green pajama bottoms, to wander around Otherworld, and he is lured to a chessboard by an affable older Captain Britain who, who, who asks him if he plays chess and then makes a lot of sort of oblique and portentous references to Roma's machinations, that she has essentially manipulated every event leading to the formation of Excalibur and their development as a team. And in fact, that in doing so, she's essentially continued Merlin's habit of just playing the people of, of Earth and of the multiverse like pawns. Yeah, I mean, she even put Captain Britain under a blunder jinx, apparently, that meant that every time he would try to do anything on his own rather than, you know, be a good member of the team, he would get all clumsy and dumb because something, and we don't know what, but something was coming and Excalibur had to be intact whenever it hit. This actually retroactively takes something that was previously just comic relief and turns it into a kind of important feature of the plot while not removing any of its humor. This is such a ridiculously tightly plotted book and Alan Davis coming back to it. Alan Davis now being the solo writer of Excalibur, he's so familiar with everything he and Chris Claremont worked on, and no little plot point, no little storytelling tick is too small to suddenly be critical to this grand tapestry. It's never clear at this point how much Davis is drawing from threads deliberately planted and how much he's basically retconning continuity where there might not have been any to begin with, how much he's taking old gags and instances and weaving them into this complex storyline. The way he goes about this, the way he makes sense of, of older, sillier stuff reminds me, although on a much tighter timeline, of some of the things that Al Ewing has been doing in the last few years. Yeah, you know, that's actually a really good parallel. I, I hadn't thought of it that way. But I don't know. I mean, I, I think... In early Excalibur, Captain Britain just being, you know, the the Pratt falling straight man, I would guess from what I know of Chris Claremont's writing style that that was just supposed to be humor. But Alan, if that is the case, Alan Davis retcons it to into having more significance, like seamlessly. I totally buy it. I totally buy everything Alan Davis brings into the plot in this era. Yeah. Now, Captain Britain, Brian, is horrified at this idea. He storms off to confront Roma and as he does, the readers get to see the elderly Captain Britain with whom he was speaking transform into, of course, Merlin. Now, wait a minute. The last time we saw Merlin, he was this elderly wizard named Murd on Earth. But he'd also died at that point. So there were already some continuity conflict. We discussed this. We discussed Excalibur, the, po the possession a few episodes back. I'll link in the visual companion, but we're going to be talking about it again very soon because to my immense satisfaction, the only person who has less patience for that story than I do is Alan Davis. Right. So Captain Britain, um, being entirely ignorant of the fact that Merlin has now been resurrected potentially twice, he forces his way into the Starlight Citadel, the seat of Roma's power. Roma is okay with this, even though uh, CB has to beat up about half her guards to get in. And the two of them basically spend the next several pages just making fun of Excalibur the Possession, going through the events of it and how ridiculous they are and how nonsense they are. And eventually Romo basically says, yeah, that's absolutely not canon. It never has been and it never will be. 
Right. I mean, they even get down to the point where they point out that Megan doesn't look like Megan. And to be fair, the art next caliber of the possession did give her some, uh, perhaps supernatural is the right word, implausible, excessive cleavage. Like, her costume doesn't really do that, but it almost seems like a cheap shot for Davis to be kind of making fun of, of the art in the book. But he is he is thorough. He takes it down in every conceivable way that it contradicts continuity or uh, taste. In his defense, for all that he makes fun of the art, he makes far more fun of the story. Indeed he does. Now, as for why there was a comic about that that Captain Britain remembers most of, Roma basically just says strange things are afoot at the Circle K, someone's manipulating you, there's mystical stuff going on, what you gonna do? Well, I'm not sure what Captain Britain's gonna do, but what Saturnine is going to do is storm in very angrily with a very large gun, because when Captain Britain broke into the Starlight Citadel, broke into Roma's home... It set off an alarm that dragged Saturnine away from a saucy liaison with a gentleman with a large mullet. And she's not happy. Yes? Captain Britain 616 has invaded the Starlight Citadel. On my way. I'll wait. No. I will send for you if I wish to see you again. She's so imperious. She's such a jerk. I love Opal Luna Saturnine. You know who she super reminds me of? Who's that? Abigail Brand. Yeah, Abigail Brand of S.W.O.R.D. Just that level of, I'm very much a person with my own wants and needs, but I do not stand for bullshit for even a moment. Right, and Captain Britain, unfortunately, is even less in the mood for bullshit than is Saturnine. He bends her gun out of the way and storms off and heads home, which it turns out is what it takes to pique Saturnine's interest. Um, alas for her, Brian is not interested. Meanwhile, in France... That sounds like the kind of thing you say as a joke, but no, actually, meanwhile, in France. Megan and Rachel are still trying to track down Megan's family. They're following a hint that they got about a strange creature in a Romani caravan. Now, at this point, Rachel is voluntarily suppressing the Phoenix Force, which is something she can do. And the reason she's doing that, and the reason she's doing it at this point, is that she realized when the two of them were sitting and talking to the Scots, as the family that Megan used to live with, that that she, that Rachel was just utterly shocked at how kind they were and how decent they seemed. And, she, you know, figured they must have been something exceptional. And she realized that her sense of what constitutes normal has been significantly colored and perhaps miscalibrated by spending most of her life in a dystopian timeline and then strictly hanging around superheroes and supervillains and in the Mojoverse and stuff. And so she's sort of trying to let things cool down and to figure out what her own baseline is outside of that. I mean, geez, I remember during Secret Wars 2, way back in the day, she was ready to literally sacrifice all life in, I want to say the universe, or at least a sizable portion of it, just to take out a villain, just to take out the Beyonder. So her attempting to be in a little better touch with humanity, I mean, yeah, that's a good call. In her defense, the Beyonder is a huge dick. This brings us to Excalibur number 46. Colin the Barbarian. So speaking of, of awesome covers, which we often do when it comes to Alan Davis issues, this one has a bunch of different Megans. Megan, of course, is a shapeshifter. Is, she's an emotional metamorph, and so there have been a lot of different visuals of her, and they're all just saying, I'm the real Megan. No, I'm the real Megan. I thought I was the real Megan with, like, the goblin princess and the bat wing ear Megan and the Megan we know and a bunch of others in the background, and it is delightful. I love Alan Davis's covers so much. I've talked about this before. I'm sure I'm going to talk about it again. He is the guy behind it. In fact, his first piece of writing for Marvel is, in my opinion, 
the single greatest cover of all time, the cover to Excalibur number four. But in general, the thing I love about his covers is how incredibly inviting they are. They're funny and they're smart, and they refer a bit to what happens in the book. And you get more out of them if you're familiar with Excalibur. But if you walk into a comic shop or up to a newsstand and you see one of those covers, you've got enough context to work out the tone of the book and a bit of its aesthetic and a lot of its sense of humor. And I got to say, man, those covers were what got me into Excalibur. You know, I saw them and I wanted to read that book. Absolutely. I mean, that is the case from the beginning. And, you know, maybe not so much with some of those fill-in issues, but if Davis is involved, then hell yeah. Now, Megan and Phoenix, they have hoofed it from France now to Germany. They're out of leads. They're not really sure what to do next. They're still looking for Megan's parents, but they're caught in a thunderstorm. And as happens when one is caught in a thunderstorm in Bavaria, in a piece of genre fiction, the only potential refuge is a big, scary castle that looks like it came straight out of a hammer film. And after Megan points that out, Rachel notes... Yeah, all we need now is Dracula and Frankenstein's monster. And then they are attacked by Dracula and Frankenstein's monster, who appear with a crackaboo. How convenient. Right. Now, Dracula hypnotizes Megan, and since Megan is especially vulnerable to other people's emotions, she transforms into what his desire implies, or at least something in that vague direction, the goblin princess that she transformed into way back in Inferno. Fortunately, Rachel is still her scrappy self, and she immediately punches the monsters out, at which point they turn into old men. Like normal old men, not monster old men. Right, like wearing checked shirts and kind of balding and stuff like that. And the castle disappears, and it turns out it's just an RV inside which they find a chained-up Nuri. Right. This is why we covered Wolverine Bloodlust, in addition to it being fun, because, yeah, this is one of the Nuri, one of the sort of psychic Yeti people from that comic, you know? Those creatures that could see the Ultra, the mystic psychic realm, and were super nice, except when they turned into renegade ones and ate everybody. Those guys, yeah. Um, this is It's a very, we told you that story so we could tell you this one. And this is, as it turns out, the creature they were told about. The woman who told them about the, the creature in the Romani caravan assumed that it must have been Megan, but it's actually this guy. And as soon as they're in contact with him, Megan begins to be able to see an interface with the Ultra, with the astral plane by default. And with the Nuri's help, Rachel is able to see it too, and also kind of get a bit of insight into what she's been doing. Rachel sees the Phoenix Force threaded through every cell of her mutant body, the terrifying potential undiminished by its current dormant state. And she also sees Megan in a new form. She's majestic and shining with elfin features and exceptionally long hair. The Nuri says that this is Megan's true self and that finding it, this is the prize at the end of their long wandering. And Davis draws beautiful people in general and women in particular very often, but I like the way he draws Megan here because she's not just like a traditional model-esque woman the way she normally is. Right, she's unearthly. This isn't Megan finding her true form the way she did when she became pretty. It's not, you know, Megan getting to be attractive. It's Megan growing into herself. Yeah, and I like that that self looks like one of the fair folk. It looks like 
an ideal of beauty that isn't just from somebody's fold-out magazine, but, you know, that would exist in this kind of psychic soul plane. Yeah, it's eerie and somewhat uncanny in ways that work very well and reflect the direction Megan's been growing very well. And then Yuri says, you know, and to Rachel, and, you know, because you helped her, you get to see your tr- true self too. Check it out. You're hella phoenixy. Huzzah! Essentially, this whole thing was faded, the Nuri said. The magic was inside you all along. Right? Now, in addition to this Pat symbolism, the Nuri tells us a little bit about himself. He was in an expedition away from his tribe, away from the collective consciousness that were the Paragon Nuri, but he was captured by a family that he helped in a snowstorm, who then used him as their magical slave until they all killed each other over disagreements about how to use his power, except for two people. You know, Dracula and Frankenstein's monster. These two old men who used the Nuri's power to cast this illusion to attempt to capture Megan and Rachel. Now, though, the Nuri is dying, and he asks Megan and Rachel to take him out to see the sky one last time, which they do. And then Megan shifts back. Not to the the, the fae form that, that she she adopted in the Ashra, but to the default form, what's, what's become sort of her her regular appearance over the course of Excalibur. And Rachel asks why Megan is is keeping that form when she's found her true self. I'm used to this form. It's how everyone is used to seeing me. But more importantly, it's how I choose to be. Meanwhile, on Earth-148, that is Erath, for those of you who have lost track, the rebels, led by the Leonin barbarian Kylan and the bemitered sorceress Satnine, have broken into the for- fortress of the evil Necrom and challenged him. And Necrom, looking a lot like Mr. Burns from that time that people thought Mr. Burns was an alien, pulls out his, well, maybe not quite his trump card, but one of his high cards, which is a zombified version of that Earth's Excalibur. This is Thor, the Black Knight, Spider-Man, and a mustached, jauntily dressed version of Captain Britain from this Earth. And I was thinking about this because zombie Thor is still holding Mjolnir. Would that work? Maybe on Earth-148 there's not the same enchantment where you have to be worthy? Or maybe Necrom's magic is just that powerful? Or maybe it's just a hammer that's kind of shaped like Mjolnir that they hooked up the zombie version with. You know, I feel good about that. I think the actual Mjolnir has actually fallen on some battlefield and nobody can lift it up, and so Necrom just, you know, had his smiths make something of the same form factor. Maybe it's actually just like one of the rubber souvenir Excaliburs? Well, that could very well be, because Kylan and Satinine do pretty well for themselves over this, uh, over their foes, as the narration tells us. Easy victories over a frightened, broken people have made Necrom complacent. He had forgotten the strength of brave hearts fighting in a just cause. His leathern brow betrays the strain of increased effort. Everything is just so goddamn heroic in Earth-148. I love Erath. I love Kylan. I love all of these people. Satnin figures out that Necrom is, is just mind-controlling the zombies. It's not that they're actual zombies. It's that they're basically puppets. And she goes from attacking the zombies to attacking Necrom and so breaking his hold over them in an awesome display of fancy sorcery. But as badass as she is, Necrom is more powerful, and he ultimately wins their duel and is able to kill her, even though he himself is gravely wounded. At least it looks pretty awesome, as we saw again in Wolverine Bloodlust. 
Alan Davis draws sorceress duels very well. Just giant swaths of geometric and chaotic color. It's so good. Kylan chases the wounded Necrom up a lighthouse stair inside the temple. He wants revenge. And this narration is beautiful. No one has set foot in this place for 20,000 years. Legend tells that it is a doorway to worlds beyond, worlds of ghostly insanity and dark glass demons. But Kylon would risk his eternal soul to follow Necrom. And follow him he does through a door at the end of the hall, bursting through that door into a bathroom where he sees a towel-clad Kurt Wagner brushing his teeth, who exclaims suddenly, Mein Gott! And that ultimately is the true curse of Excalibur. They will never, ever, ever get to use a bathroom in the lighthouse in peace. Right? So Kylan remembers tales of a blue demon appearing during Necrom's takeover of the royal court many, many years ago. The caption reminds us that this took place from a very different perspective in... Excalibur number one, page 18, panels two and three. That's how specific the references go to two particular panels that have now led us to this giant plot event that is going to change everything for a while. And those panels, as you may recall, were the time that Nightcrawler opened a door in the lighthouse and found himself face to face with a weird barbarian sorceress court and immediately noped out. That court, yeah, that was Kylan's world, and if you look back, god, it totally was. The fashion and stuff even is exactly the same. But Kylan's not going to think too hard about this, because he has encountered this demon, this terrible omen that heralded the rise of Necrom, and he beheads this blue fiend. But he doesn't, because luckily, Kylan's magic sword can never harm one of true virtue and pure spirit, and if that doesn't describe Nightcrawler, then nothing does. Right? There are these great pair of panels of Kurt touching his intact neck, looking to the wall damage to the left and to the right, where the sword, like, you know, cut six inches deep. It's a beautiful reaction shot, and Alan Davis is wonderful, so of course it was. Now, Nightcrawler tries to argue with Kylan, and Kylan is shocked to discover that Nightcrawler is speaking English. He's speaking Kylan's native language, and not only that, but Kylan recognizes an old friend. Excalibur's got Widget, and that is because Kylan is Colin McKay. He is the little kid whom Widget helped escape from Vixen's mutant hunting goons and Excalibur number two. Widget created a portal, and Colin ended up on Erath, where the royal family took him in and trained him. And Kylan is just a bastardization of his given name, Colin. Yeah, so Colin grew up, got more cat-like because of his mutant powers, hooked up with Princess Satsneen, took Widget as his totem, and if you look at his tunic, yeah, it looks kind of like Widget, sort of stylized. Interestingly enough, Satinine's tunic has a sigil that looks a hell of a lot like Doctor Strange's famous round window. They don't really ever go into that, but it's a neat touch. I assume that in addition to being her Earth's Saturnine slash Courtney Ross slash whatever, she's also that world's Sorcerer Supreme. Like, she... Pretty, I mean, she's an incredibly powerful sorcerer. Yeah, I'll buy that. But unfortunately, Necrom, fearing the rise of this kingdom, took over the kingdom, and that's why Kylan and Satinine had to start a rebellion. Now, during this whole conversation, Kylan is very cagey about what his mutant power is. We're not going to discover it for a while. His appearance is incidental to it, and it's never really determined for sure whether it's a result of his mutation or 
or something that happened as he was growing up on Earth. In addition to Widget, Kylan recognizes something else in the lighthouse, and that is the demon whom China Doll shrunk down and petrified, the one who was stealing artifacts around the UK. Yeah, and this doesn't make a lot of sense because Necrom went through that door just fractions of a second before Kylan did. But apparently, in Erath and in Earth-616, time flows very differently. Here, Necrom's been here for over a month doing his various museum heists that Nightcrawler and Micromax have been trying to stop. Well, we know that has to be the case because on 616, Colin McKay disappeared less than a year ago. Exactly, yeah. But they don't have too much time to consider how this is an even more bizarre version of the usual uh, handling of time in superhero comics, because from the cellar come intimidating sounds of thub-donk, thub-donk. Widget has built himself a very asymmetrical robot body and is doing his best to ambulate around on it. Um, while, while exclaiming, Eep! 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 And to the tremendous, tremendous entertainment of, of TechNet, um, who, who see that, you know, he's walking in circles because one leg is shorter than the other, and Kylan immediately jumps to his defense. You should not make fun of Widget. He is my friend. Kylan's so serious. I love him. Suddenly, though, because it's Excalibur and things just happen in quick succession all the time, the wall explodes in red light, and a dark insectoid monster speaking in an alien language and alien font appears, menacing with spikes of science fiction. That brings us to Excalibur 47, which has what I think of as one of the all-time classic Alan Davis Excalibur covers, one of one of my go-tos when I think of, of Davis's covers, along with, you know, number four, along with the the Kitty Pride um, approved by the Comics Code Authority warning. Um, and this this one has the Excalibur crew standing stock still on a chessboard as Captain Britain says, Call me paranoid, but I think we're being manipulated. I believe this was actually the first Davis Excalibur cover I ever saw, and it charmed the hell out of me. So, Nightcrawler and Technet and Kylan were confronting a big bug-eyed monster, right? Right, and Kylan and Nightcrawler realize that the bug-eyed monster is only fighting defensively. But because Technet has already jumped into the fray, it's going to take a miracle to de-escalate the melee. Fortunately for Nightcrawler, the fight is interrupted by a crowd of fluttering baby dragon-alien hybrids. Because, that's right, Numbers and Dragon are now proud parents. I just want to state for the record that I would die for their love. Yeah, Numbers, the sort of accountant person from TechNet, he's sort of a big, tall, reptilian, amphibian something or other, and the giant dragon, the Nazi Earth equivalent of Lockheed that powered the Nazis train during the cross-time caper, it's just... I, I, I know what you mean. Like, they, it just makes me happy. They're in love. They had a lot of strange little children. Like, a lot. Like, dozens. And everything is wonderful. Yeah, and, and we've, we've known they were a thing for a while because Captain Britain walked in on them in fl- a flagrante delicto a few issues back. But but yeah, they are they are now proud parents and they are very proud and very excited about their brood. And this distracts TechNet enough for everyone to sort of back off a little bit. The bug-eyed monster removes their helmet and reveals that she is actually a Shi'ar cutie named Cerise. Although we're not going to find out that she is a Shi'ar for some time yet. Now, Cerise's deal, she can generate malleable energy fields of coherent light that do what she wants them to. She is also she also has bitchin' hair in the manner of the Shi'ar. 
It's actually even better. Like, she has these giant flares of hair coming out to the left and to the right. She has a big top knot on top, and this sort of hat that she wears in between those hair bits that has these wonderful little shiny bug eyes, and she's got this whole pink fuchsia color scheme, which makes sense because Cerise means cherry in French. I love her look. She's actually one of my favorite Alan Davis designs ever. And yeah, the insectoid armor that she's wearing, it's very reminiscent of the armor that Lalandra wore when she first came to Earth. And this is interesting because you mentioned that we're not going to find out the Cerisa Shiar for a while. From what I understand, from what I've read, Davis didn't specifically intend her to be. And in fact, the introduction that she verbatim gives everybody she meets multiple times in this issue doesn't mention anything about Shi'ar space or Shandalar or anything like that. It was actually Scott Lobdell years later who made the specific Shi'ar connection. Now, speaking of that introduction, we're actually not going to repeat it here um, because it involves a large number of unpronounceable locations which will prove entirely irrelevant. Basically, Cerise claims that she was traveling through hyperspace between several of those unpronounceable locations, and she was thrown off course and crashed materialized on Earth. Eventually, we're, we're going to learn that she's actually a Shi'ar war criminal on the run, but she, so she's not entirely lying, but she's not telling quite the entire truth either. Fortunately for you know the cohesion of Excalibur, the Shi'ar are the kind of species where war criminal means humanitarian, so she's still going to be cool even when that that comes up. But for now, they don't go into that because their conversation is interrupted by a space-time disruption outside the lighthouse. Have you noticed how that's how basically every scene transition occurs? There's suddenly a big crash or a teleportation sound or something. Going back to the Muppet show, I know that one of the rules was that you generally wanted to end a sketch either with an explosion or with someone getting eaten. And Excalibur really follows that logic. See, again, I, I feel like the Muppet show is such a good analog. Now, this specific space-time disruption comes in the form of the special executive. I told you they were going to come up. Yeah, they are the future version of TechNet that we actually saw as TechNet's rivals during the pre-Excalibur Captain Britain stories. And their character designs, they're not quite as cartoony as the TechNet we know, but they're very much akin. They're colorful and mostly humanoid-ish, sorta, but all fascinatingly designed, all clearly alien. The kind of bizarre traits that just make you want to know more about the details of their individual species, and you never really find much out. Now, we mentioned that they're a future version of TechNet, and that future is here, as it turns out. Numbers, the reptilian accountant and now proud papa, is able to negotiate a deal whereby the members of TechNet will join the special executive. And since it's technically TechNet and not its individual members, it's exiled to Earth, getting out of there is pretty important to TechNet because according to the special executive psychic, there is a 98.73% probability that Earth 616 will cease to exist in the next 78 hours. So, you know, Tuesday. Fortunately, Nightcrawler, having just lost his new team, gets his old one back. Just after TechNet and the special executive take off, Megan and Rachel return, followed closely by a still pajama-pantsed Brian. Kitty, however, is still off on her trip with Alistair Stewart. Right. They are in Ireland, and what they're specifically doing is they're hanging out with a bunch of archaeologists who have discovered via radar something really alarming on their dig site. About... 200 meters below the ground, there is a small, perfectly cubic room with no apparent entrances or exits, no tunnels, no points of access. 
And inside that room is a roughly human-sized and shaped figure. It's moving around and seems to be very alive indeed. And we'll get to what that all represents in our third Alan Davis-written Excalibur episode in a little while, which sort of wraps up a lot of these plot lines. Sort of. But in the meantime... You've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, I seem to remember that Cyclops can't control his powers because of a head injury. Does this mean if Rogue steals his powers, she can control those powers, or does she steal his broken brain too? Has this ever been addressed in the comics? Oh, anonymous Tumblr listener. Now, I'm going to go back to my refrain about Cyclops' powers. It's inconsistent. Usually, Rogue can control Cyclops' powers, and basically, whenever a writer takes the time to think it through, she can. Um, she always can in the um, in X-Men Evolution, which is a detail that I really appreciate. She often can in the comics. Occasionally, someone f- forgets, and I think during one brief period she was sufficiently overwhelmed with the powers that she had absorbed from a large number of people that she had trouble controlling any of them. But it's kind of a toss-up as to whether the writer remembers that that's why Cyclops can't control his powers. Egos and X-Men asks on Tumblr, Penny for your thoughts on Laura, best Wolverine Kinney, going back to her old designation. And a recap for those um, unaware, Tom Taylor's all-new Wolverine is ending after the old woman Laura storyline. It's going to be relaunched as X-23, written by Mariko Tamaki, which is coming off a She-Hulk run. We've seen, you know, Laura's going back to the X-23 designation, and we've seen sketches of her new costume, which is also very much a throwback to it. Right. Okay, so a little bit of plot here before we answer this question for anybody who's unfamiliar with what's been up with Laura Kinney. So, she was born as the experimental assassin X-23, a most-of-the-way clone of Logan, and she took up the Wolverine name after her adoptive father Logan died in the, well, Death of Wolverine story, but also after a bunch of stories in which she grew into believing in the importance of superheroes, going from cynicism to idealism. Now, one of the climactic events that happened relatively recently in All New Wolverine, the book about her as Wolverine, had her explicitly rejecting the name X-23. I mean, that was what the people who had forced her to do, like, terrible murders had labeled her as, and it was specifically not a name, just a dehumanizing label. So as for what that means now, we know the new book is going to be called X-23. We don't know for sure whether she's going to be calling herself X-23 or still Wolverine or just Laura or something else entirely. I mean, this could just be Marvel trying to keep the trademark active. But her becoming Wolverine, not just gaining that superhero name, but being in a book called Wolverine, that was a huge step for her in character growth and a huge step for her in the Marvel Universe. And it was earned over years and years of story that completely justified why she would be at that point, why she would be Wolverine. Yeah, it was so descriptive of everything good that I think of when I think of legacy. And we talked about this with Tom Taylor. We talked about it a bunch of times. Um, But it was so thoroughly and completely narratively earned. And it felt like exactly the kind of evolution I wanted to see out of shared universe superhero comics, the preservation of a concept that still allowed for significant growth and evolution. And... I'd like to think Logan would have dug it too. You know, fictional character that he is, whose likes and dislikes are entirely determined by external writers, but that's not the point. Yeah, I mean, he always wanted Laura to get past, you know, her origin as a killer and to become the hero he always wanted to be and never felt he could be. And so to see her 
taking up the bright colors, taking up the name Wolverine, I think he'd be proud of that. I don't think he'd want to take the name back and force her to change her to something else again. And also, honestly, Laura's more interesting than Logan at this point. Logan's story has been told. And that's why that legacy is important. That's why it's important to, you know, have the mantle of superheroes be sometimes passed from one person to another. So your story doesn't stagnate as one person's story is told. So what, in this case, Wolverine means can continue. That's powerful, or it should be powerful. Yeah, I mean, Logan can come back. That's fine. He just needs to get a different job. Like, he can go to Canada, and yeah, I, I want him to get to retire peacefully. Maybe he can go be a lumberjack or, like, open a bar or something. The other thing that really bugs me about this, and, and it's come up, and I've talked about it some on Twitter, is the costume designs, which are very, very evocative of the old X-23 costumes, not only in their color and and composition, but in the fact that they feel like they were designed around the year 2000. Um, they're really dated. They're incredibly fiddly in ways that I am shocked any artist would voluntarily set out to draw, you know, a hundred or so times in any given issue. And they're just, the everything about them, the lines and the silhouette of them are just, they, they feel dated. They feel like an outfit that I could have put together at Hot Topic in the early aughts. And Laura's outgrown that, and I think comics have outgrown that. Yeah, so we'll see. I mean, Mariko Tamaki did a stellar job on She-Hulk, formerly Hulk. She's got a lot of great indie work as well. And I am I feel like she's earned my trust as a writer. So we'll see what happens. I mean, the book could turn out to be every bit as good as All-New Wolverine, and I really hope it is. It's just from what little we know now, it's hard not to be a bit pessimistic. Yeah, it's hard not to see it as the kind of reset that inevitably dials back exciting and interesting change and also dials back representation because it reverts to an older status quo, which tends to be, you know, white dudes. It's true. But I am ever the optimist, and I am choosing to be as optimistic as I can here. I hope that X-23 by Mariko Tamaki is the best book Marvel has ever published and a fitting tribute to Laura Kinney and how rad she is. And also that Logan gets to retire. Yes, that too. Speaking of awesome things, we are a totally listener-supported podcast, and some levels of support come with acknowledgement on air from various fictional characters and concepts. We'll start, as we often do, with the angry Claremontian narrator. You thought you had free will, Sean Hutchinson. You thought you had agency, that your actions were your own. That the repeating black and white tile patterns all around you were merely a relic of mid-century design. How short-sighted. And how shocked you will be when the hand of Tomas Sierstadrud descends, grabs you unceremoniously by the head, and moves you two squares forward and one to the left. And I am passing the mic here to, uh, Sexy Saturnine. Okay, then. Yes. On my way. I have been summoned to the Starlight Citadel thanks to an ill-timed outburst from our captain from Earth-616. Cassidy Winter, Alistair, the two of you have provided a most satisfactory diversion these last nights. Admirably forceful but appropriately deferential, as befits the consorts of the moment for the omniversal Majestrix. You shall remember our dalliance for the rest of your short lives. Perhaps, now and again, I shall as well. And with that, 
Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, a fan's lifelong dream comes true as Bishop joins the X-Men. Just in time to predict their doom. Doom.